From the ISC, I am Lara Pedley and welcome to the ISC podcast, where I speak with inspiring insurance leaders about networking, mentorship and building a successful career in insurance. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Suzanne Liveridge with me. Suzanne is managing partner and a global board member at Kennedy's. She works with insurers, self-insured corporates, brokers and local authorities and spearheads the firm's women in insurance and diversity groups. Outside the law, Suzanne continues to be very involved in the commercial and social sectors. In 2010, she became the first female president of the Sheffield Chamber of Commons in its 242-year history, as well as various NED roles in the arts and sports world. When I started out, I suppose if you start at the very beginning... I had absolutely no intention of being a lawyer at all. Oh, really? Um, no, it, it, uh, it wasn't something that was in my family, uh, you know, a profession as such. And certainly with the women in my family, um, they hadn't gone on to university and done degrees, etc. Okay. So um, it wasn't on my mind at all. In fact, I'll be really honest with you, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian from about... It all makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> Since I was about 11 or 12, um, I just adored comedy and I was a mimic at school and I used to love uh, performing characters etc so I always thought that's what I want to do Mm. Um, and actually to be fair when I went to university I did start doing some stand-up for a while so Mm -hmm. I did achieve uh, my ambition Um, but as it was rightly pointed out to me it doesn't really pay the bills (laughs) and um, very naked (laughs) well it does for some but there's millions and millions of comedians behind the ones that are famous on tv that Mm. don't make it so Uh, I had to rationalise my decision process um, and went to university to do um, a marketing degree. Okay. Um, My background at that point was business-related, business-focused. And I really fancied working in perhaps advertising. um, And I love chocolate, so there's always (laughs) a temptation to go and work for a big uh, food manufacturer or whatever. So um, I did a marketing degree, which at the time when I was doing it, um, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, was, was unusual. They'd only just, uh, it only just started as a degree course. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoyed it, but within that, there was a legal option. And that's when I fell in love with the law. I, I started to practice some of the courses and, and within a year or two realised that that was the direction I wanted to go in. So I didn't intend to be a lawyer in the insurance industry, but I became one. Oh, fantastic. So did you finish the marketing degree or did you? Yeah, I did. I did. I did two in one. So I actually came out with the equivalent of a law degree. So I went straight on to do the solicitor's exams. But there's always a very funny story because once you've done your solicitor's exams, you then go and um, do a training contract in a law firm. Um, And I went on my first day. And everybody else at that time was doing a pure law degree. Mm. And I'd obviously uh, got a marketing degree. Um, with a side of comedy. With a, with, yeah, with a little <laughs> bit of that thrown in because I'd done four years of that as well. And, um, and people were talking about their dissertations. And they said, I did my dissertation on trusts and estates. And I did mine on you know, the English history of legal system in 1843 or whatever. And I said, oh, interestingly, I did mine on the pot noodle. <laughs> Because, but it is actually true. My dissertation on the marketing front was actually to sell dried food um, to the French. So, um, oh, really? and, and the, the beautiful little story about that is uh, um, somebody had picked that up in the local press some years ago. 
um, and put a, a short story out about it. Pot Noodle must have read it. And when I went into work the next week, there were several cases of chicken chow mein <laughs> appeared. <laughs> Pot Noodle had sent them to me and... Uh, I was very proud of it. But <laughs> sponsored by Pot Noodle from thereafter. S- sponsored by Pot Noodle from thereafter. And uh, I've still got the most brilliant advertising campaign that they, they need to come and talk to me about. <laughs> but it's under wraps for now still. Still under wraps. We yeah, won't absolutely. disclose it. Absolutely. <laughs> but I, I then ventured into the law and, and did all the legal exams and solicitor's exams. And um, the Pot Noodle was well behind me. However, I will say this, mm-hmm. by having... Um, an alternative degree as well and having different facets to my education and to uh, my knowledge that was invaluable when I started in, in, mm-hmm. at work because um, it's it's good, it, essential to be a good lawyer mm. but actually we have to market we have to sell we have to understand our services and products we have to understand and engage about our media and our communication and so actually it proved really, really useful mm. um, and stood me in good stead to have that uh, varied education mm. in my background rather than just a, a, a pure uh, legal knowledge. Well, and even the comedy on the side, you're, you're very customer facing. So I, I'm sure that helps when building relationships with clients. Uh, absolutely. Well, you've got to be your authentic self, <laughs> as I say. And, um, and I think humour is one of the best things to have in the workplace. Mm. Absolutely. Um, it, it used in the right way, of course, but... Um, if you're happy and you're smiling at work, you enjoy yourself mm. and it builds relationships with people. So mm. I think it's great to be able to have humour in your in your working day. Mm. Uh, I completely agree. So you're originally from Sheffield. I am. Is that where you did your training contract? I started out in Sheffield, yes. Um, and um, I love my home and I love my home city and I'm very, very proud of Sheffield and will always be so. Um and so there was plenty of opportunity for me there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've, I've worked there ever since. So until recently, I've been uh, uh, Sheffield-born and bred and, and office-based. Oh, in, really? I didn't in, know that. In that region, yeah. Okay, so you just come down to London uh, temporarily. Well, I have such a varied job now. I tend to be everywhere. Mm-hmm. So not just London, but we're part of a large global law firm in the insurance market so um, we we are as partners and I am in particular wherever our clients need us to be Mm. and in my case it's all over the place Mm. Um, but my home is still there my family is still there and and I love going home I just don't go home every day like everybody else (laughs) (laughs) so backtracking slightly you've just been promoted to be the first female global managing partner of an insurance law firm that's right. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So take us on that journey from from doing your exams after university to to where you are today. Tell us a bit about it. Okay, well, I started in a traditional law firm and I think um, as many young people in that era, you know, you um, learnt your day job um, being a trainee solicitor and um, and I loved it. I loved it from day one. I've always enjoyed the work that I do, mm-hmm. but I particularly loved the insurance law aspect, uh, um, and that was clearly where I was destined to be. And after a period of time, it's probably something I'll touch upon later, um, but probably because as a result of some discrimination, mm-hmm. uh, I found out that somebody was paid more than me, and he was a guy and I was a girl, mm-hmm. and apart from that, I couldn't find much difference between us. So... Was this, was this early on in your career? Yeah, that was quite early on in my career. Okay. 
Um, and that led to me uh, uh, leaving that firm, which is a very well-established and good firm, and starting uh, at my own office in Sheffield uh, in parallel with, a, with another organization, but they didn't have a base in Sheffield. So I set up an office. So I left, oh, a, wow. a, a, I left a very large, successful firm and went to a single office space behind a church with me and one other person. So, so you like to take risks? Well, looking back with hindsight, I'd have never told my younger self to do it, but I'm really <laughs> glad I did because I had to then make it work. Mm. And I learned everything by making mistakes. Uh, I didn't have a role model right in front of me that could guide me and advise me. But it did one thing, and I think that's really interesting, Laura, in that it helped me create my own culture. So all the things I didn't like mm. that I'd experienced, I was able to change in the environment I was creating. And so I also learned my other invaluable lesson, which was when I'd started out in my legal career, I'd always tried to be the person I thought I was expected to be. Mm -hmm. And I think we all do that. And certainly back then in that era, there was a formula mm -hmm. of how to be a lawyer. And it was how to look a certain way, how to behave a certain way. And you followed that formula. And when I left and set up on my own, I realized that nobody could tell me the formula. <laughs> I had to create my own. And the only thing I could be was my authentic self. Mm. So the culture that we create around ourselves, if we can base it upon our authenticity, who we are with our values, you will attract like-minded people mm. and you will then spur on others to behave in the same way and develop a culture mm. and I'm not saying our culture was perfect but it was radically different to some of the cultures I'd experienced elsewhere. Mm. So you've grown in your career with a, a culture that ultimately you've created you you've surrounded yourself with um, with well, you've created a culture internally in your organisation back then when it was just the two of you, which has clearly been transferred into, into Kennedy's today because the culture here is, is, is really transparent. Um, That's a really interesting point and, and very perceptive of you because I actually joined Ken, Kennedy's 10 years ago. So my office by then was very well established. There was mm. 75 of us, something like that. Um, and when I was looking for a home for us, um, and for me, the one thing that mattered was that it had my culture mm. or our culture. This wasn't my culture, actually. This was our culture that we had developed as a group of people growing yeah. together. And that it would some be, be, be somewhere where we could be us. Mm. But the people we work with would act like us, look like us, talk like us, mm. behave like us. Mm. And one of the biggest pleasures I ever had was meeting a, a few of the partners here mm. and knowing instantly this is where I want to be mm. because their culture really matched what I felt was important for me mm. and what I felt was important for our profession mm. and to be inclusive and to be somewhere where everybody had a chance of being successful mm. uh, was critical for us to be successful as an organization. And that's exactly what Kennedy's was to me mm. and still is and, and even more so. Mm. No, and, and culture, we all know how important culture is and a company with a good good internal culture. I mean, it it oozes um, 
energy I think when you walk in um, I definitely felt that when I came in here just just last Monday um, but for those that are working for maybe a bigger organization that um, that are dealing with traditional culture what advice would you give to to someone trying to change that culture from from within a large organization yeah that's a, another good point I would probably premise it by saying actually Kennedy's is very large in that we're all over the world and we have over 2,000 people. Um, It's a big organisation to have the family feel that you felt when you came in here. So it is unusual because we are very large and yet we've been able to keep a family feel, um, a, a proper culture. So that wherever we open a new place, we make sure it looks and feels like Kennedy's. Mm. So it would be replicating that. But I think that anywhere in a large organization, first of all, it needs to start from the top. The leadership of any organization needs to be in tune with its people, with its customers, Mm. with its market, and be able to deliver and prove to deliver a place of work which gives people the opportunities to be their authentic selves, to be successful in what they do and for them to thrive, whatever their background, whatever their ethnicity, sexuality or whatever, Mm. that it's a place where they can be successful. So I think everybody can make a difference but the first point is to get that message at the very top that that culture that filters down affects everyone. Mm. And in terms of individuals within organisations, I think it's making sure you have the voice We all have a voice, but a lot of people find it very difficult to use it. Mm. You don't have to be a loud person. You don't have to be a show person to be able to do that. But there are lots of mechanisms to have a voice that are out there. Mm. And if you collaborate with your colleagues to form groups which have an even stronger voice, Mm. if you listen and learn from organizations, let's take the ISC, for, for example, for young people that have aspirations, young women, it, there, are, there are places where you can go, where you can get support mm. that give you the tools to have conversations. Mm. And it's about having conversations with people about what is important to you and what is important in terms of behavior and attitude mm. and influencing. But I will always go back to my proposition that the influence has to start from the top mm. because whilst ever there are the wrong attitudes mm that are the controlling minds of organisations, it is very hard to change. What I would say on that point, to be fair, in our industry, is the way that diversity, if you look at the Dive In Festival, how that's been embraced by our insurance community around the world is incredible. Mm. And things are changing and conversations are happening. You know, I walked around London last week well, when the festival was on, and it was incredible. It was everywhere. A real buzz, right? It was a massive buzz. I just think back to 10, 15 years ago, it, I couldn't imagine it. <laughs> yeah. So let's not be too harsh on ourselves, but we know that there's a lot of progress to be made. Mm. And I think that at, at executive level, those messages have got through loud and clear, and organisations now are really looking at themselves, doing some cultural and behavioural diagnostics within their organisations, mm. And as I say before, the next generation that are coming along, um, I think are very vocal and Mm. far more confident. 
and will continue to do to, to be so mm. um, and I will do everything in my power to influence as others will mm. to make sure that those voices are heard mm. and I think that's a really uh, really nice piece um, there's a misconception that being heard and being loud is the way to get messages through when actually everyone has a voice and just having those conversations and I think having those conversations until you start to see progress don't give up keep going because you'll eventually get there um, and just look at how far we've come exactly and if I could shine a light back to you when I started working um, you'd be appalled probably <laughs> about some of the stories I could tell but time moves on and we have to look forwards. For me, it's all about making sure that the right messaging is out there, that people have the opportunity and the know-how to address issues, to encourage changes in behaviours, to, to actually appreciate and support good behaviours, to reward, to acknowledge and to praise mm. when people are getting it right. We're all so easy to, to criticise, aren't we? Mm. And... Um, and it's really important that you also recognise people who are trying really hard to make a difference. Mm. And nowhere is going to be perfect. Mm. But what we can do is continuously improve, talk to each other, communicate and be really honest with each other. Mm. And I think as a young person in our profession now, in, in the insurance industry, there's so much opportunity. And you may be quiet, you may be mild-mannered and you may feel uncomfortable being very vocal in certain situations but there's other mechanisms mm. there are other support groups there are other ways of communicating whether it be by blog or by commentary or by mm. feedback indirect feedback um, organizations now are looking and seeking that out mm. and people should take that opportunity mm. And talking of the dive-in festival and behaviours, you uh, so you sat on a panel last week, and I wanted to to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, you spoke on a panel last week about bullying and harassment in the workplace uh, during the dive-in festival. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what conversations were happening and some of the outcomes from that event? Yeah, it was really interesting, actually, um, and superbly attended. Um, that was really impressive but a lot of thought came out of it and in particular I think there was one important message for me which I briefly mentioned which is the calling out mm. and bullying and harassment should have no place mm. in any environment whatsoever the reality is it still exists very sadly it still exists and some of the core messages all revolve around when people witness hear of see any situation where there's harassment or bullying, they need to call it out. Mm. We need to give people the confidence that they can call it out. And that was a complete running theme. Somebody in the audience asked a question saying, but, but what if I call it out and, and, and nothing happens? And maybe there are some organisations where that culture doesn't fit with you. Mm -hmm. That sometimes happens. But in the main, I think that there is an opportunity for everyone, men and women alike, to start to talk about those behaviours, to help people address those behaviours mm. and to have far less tolerance than sometimes seems to be the case mm. around uh, conversations or conduct which are wholly unacceptable in a modern-day workplace. Mm. 
when we talk about calling out behaviors, it's almost got quite a, a negative connotation attached to it. It doesn't need to be that way. I think calling out behaviors, any behaviors is a starting point. Talking to each other, telling each other how we feel is a great place to start when, um, when discussing behaviors at work and how someone's actions makes another person feel. You're totally right. You've got to be honest. And honesty and transparency are some of the best mechanisms in any environment, whether it be work, family, home, whatever it may be. And if we're honest with each other. So if you had a situation where somebody's behavior upset you, Mm. the best thing you can do for that individual is tell them. Mm. You don't have to be aggressive. It doesn't have to be a complaint. Mm. You can have a conversation potentially with that individual. It may not be the, the situation where you can and there are other mechanisms. But normally it's not got that negative connotation of calling it out as in a complaint. It's about explaining to somebody, you may not appreciate this, but the way you behaved made me feel like this. Mm. And I always say to people, you've got to take time to stand in somebody else's shoes and walk around in them and then hear back what you've just said Mm. or what you just did Mm. and how that can be interpreted. And the more that we can learn and understand ourselves and trust Mm. ourselves and understand our authentic selves, Mm. we will be far less likely to behave inappropriately Mm. because we'll have an understanding a deeper understanding Mm. and you know there was discussion around what's banter most people know that you don't want a society where you can't have some fun or socially engage with all your friends and colleagues at work Mm. but there are lines and most people if not all people should know those lines and those boundaries Mm. and it's all about understanding what that those are Mm. and appreciating appreciating that whatever you say or do can affect somebody so how is that going to make them feel Mm. and that becomes the norm after a while it just Mm. becomes the norm that uh, some of the bravado that perhaps has gone off in the past as banter is actually very very offensive Mm. and that needs to be stamped out but what I'm finding is my male colleagues are saying to me well what can I do you know I'm I'm a middle-aged white male I feel isolated and that's helping people So if some of my male colleagues are in a situation where they can hear what is alleged as banter, but it's obviously offensive, he can say, I don't think you should say that. That's Mm. that's the wrong language. And actually, I find that offensive. So there are things that everybody can do. I also say to my male colleagues, by the way, um, not colleagues, but the the men I, I deal with in the industry, when we're talking about this subject is harassment and bullying isn't something that's aimed at women. Harassment mm. and bullying is yeah. aimed at lots of people, mm. uh, anybody. And it needs to be stamped out everywhere. Exactly. So uh, we all work together for a common cause. Mm. There isn't a them and us in this. It's, it's certainly all about everybody understanding how we should behave. Mm what's acceptable and what's not acceptable mm. and when you're unsure having conversations and seeking guidance mm. if somebody is absolutely uh, stepping over that line and breaching it then then i do recommend it being called out mm. uh, and you touched upon it there but there's um it's something calling out behaviors is something that everyone can do but also there's a reflection piece i went to an amazing event on tuesday all about communication um and there's some crazy stats that apparently only six percent of the words that come out of your mouth are actually how you're communicating with someone Uh, most of it's body language um, and the gestures you're using and it's about taking that time 
that selfish time to reflect on what you're doing as an individual and how it might be coming across on someone else. Um, and what I think once you go through that process, you start thinking about it and you have to be, you have to remind yourself to do it um, because we're always changing. But if you take that time out of your day to really think about the impact you're having on someone, that's also a huge step a lot of people can take. That's it's good, a good advice. And also how we communicate. It's interesting isn't it? with modern technology, it's by phone, it's mm. by video link or it's email. Mm. And we can both read an email, the same email and interpret it in two different ways. Mm. I'm a terrible typer. <laughs> right? Okay. And I, I, I can't get over the fact that I keep on pressing the wrong button and everything's in capitals. <laughs> and I, I have to re- I've either got to retype it or put oops I'm sorry I'm not shouting it's just I keep on <laughs> accidentally pressing the capitals button because you know capital letters mean shouting to, mm. to people so uh, that's a silly uh, example but it puts it into context of I may mean one thing but mm. somebody else can interpret it which is I'm a big big fan of uh, face-to-face meetings I think it's great that we have all the technology mm. um, Kennedy's lead the, way, lead the way in innovation and technology and we're really proud of it but that human part of what we do is so important mm. and having the time to spend with people mm. and having that contact um, is invaluable. That's why we travel a lot in our business because we actually like to go and see everybody, mm. um, not just a, a voice on the end of a telephone, but to, to have a presence because I think uh, the, the, the physical interaction of a human being in, with that body language mm. says so much more than, than the words you're saying. Mm. Well, that feeds quite nicely into into my next theme. Um, you mentioned earlier that you spend a lot of time on a plane and you don't go as home as much as you'd like, which um, I'm sorry for, but uh, it kind of ha- um, it's implied in your job at the moment. Uh, how do you adapt yourself to the different cultures that you go uh, and visit and work in? That's a good question. I. I'd like to think I'm versatile anyway in that um, because I am me, I'm afraid I don't fit the mould of the traditional (laughs) managing partners you've probably guessed. Um, And wherever I am, I will always be me. Mm -hmm. That in terms of a a culture means I'm an open person Mm -hmm. and therefore I can have build relationships wherever I am, even if there is a language barrier, a, a cultural difference. I think something I really enjoy is getting around those barriers, whatever they may be, and being able to um, communicate um, and show respect to each other, Mm. um, no matter our our differences in terms of of culture. Mm. And I absolutely love the diverse culture of our firm. I absolutely love the fact that um, we're in so many places all over the world, mm. and yet we're all Kennedys. Mm. So we've got people in Latin America, in Australia, in uh, Hong Kong, and in Sheffield. <laughs> you know, I mean, the most exotic places you can imagine. I met but your Hong Kong colleagues a few years ago, actually. They're fantastic, aren't they? <laughs> they are, yeah. And that's, that's another thing about the culture in that, that yes, we, we're different and from different places and backgrounds and nationalities and languages, mm. but we have a common thread. And our common thread is our culture and values, the Kennedy's culture and mm. values, not the local region's culture and values, which, which sit aside us as an organisation. But I can honestly say that when I'm working with a number of my partners, mm. wherever they are, we, they're friends. Mm. It's, a, it's a good working relationship based on the foundation of what Kennedy's is. Mm. And so that's a really good tip for organisations. If you can get that, mm. then 
the cultural experience you have when you become a globalized organization as we are mm. is so much easier because you all have a commonality and mm. a common purpose and that common purpose is to be kennedys mm. and it's it's the heart of the firm right that it, that's that's what brings you all together and 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 you can sense that wherever you go it, it's in our dna mm. and if you go I've, I've got a colleague richard west who's Kennedy's through and through and a superb innovator. Um, and he always says if you cut him in half, it would say like a stick of rock. It would just say Kennedy's all the way through. Um, and I think that's, that's common for all of us. Mm. Uh, it just gets under your skin, this place, and uh, I'm proud to be part of it. Oh, and it's, it's lovely to experience, I have to say. Thank you. Um, we've completely bypassed I wanted to know a bit more about you we completely bypassed uh, your career journey you went from uh, telling me you started up an organisation with you and one other person to telling me you you brought in here with 75 people so um, tell us a bit about some of the challenges you faced other than um, you mentioned you didn't have a role model in front of you when you started um, started out just, just the two of you as you didn't have a role model in front of you when you were starting um, this new business where did you seek advice and and how did you overcome that obstacle well I had a limited supply of uh, leading local uh, people that did what I the the work that I did Um, so um, I looked at my family my father was a very good business mentor Uh, my mother was an amazing people person so taught me the skills of how to manage and deal with people. And I also had to learn from making mistakes, which is a tough way of learning, Mm. but you never make the same mistake twice. Mm. So um, I made some frightful errors. But what I've tried to do is I always pass that on to the people that work for me now. I tell them before they do it, this is what I learned, never do this. Um, The challenges before then really were around being and acting in a way you think you should in an organisation. Because particularly in some of the professions and in some industries, Mm. there's a way you should present yourself. Mm. And we all try and be that person. It's like an act, isn't it? You come to work and you put on a bit of a a show Mm. or a a, a facade. Mm. And a lot of people in my lifetime I've seen have done that. And I just got to the point where I didn't want to do that anymore. Mm. And so... When you say, how did I learn what to become, I became what I wanted to be. Does that make sense? In that I hadn't got a set of rules saying, as a mentor, saying you need to do this, you need to do that. You need to look like this, you need to say that. This is your ambition point. This is the direction you should be traveling in. Mm. I could take advice from people around me, but fundamentally I decided Mm. for me that direction and I was given a lot of freedom to do that. I was part of an organisation, but the part I was running, mm. um, uh, the office I was running was, was my sole responsibility. So within that, not only did I make mistakes, but I also found my own direction of travel. Mm. So it, it, that's what I'm saying. From that moment where I was upset about a salary rise that was not too big a differential, mm. but it was sufficient to make me angry about the injustice of that. Mm. And that spurred me on to do what I did. And even the mistakes I made, I don't regret Mm. um, because they helped me be a better version of myself Mm. and helped me learn the lessons to pass on to others to Mm. to not make that error. Mm. Uh, I also, at a subsequent stage, um, 
as I work with clients, because a number of clients actually just became friends. Um, a, a lot of my role still is, is very much client-focused, and mm. I'm a people person. <laughs> so um, one of my clients, who's, who's a very, very close friend, really became a great mentor. So I would go to her mm. and seek advice and talk through problems, and she would give me um, a different perspective, and that was invaluable. Mm. And then later on in that process, I also realised we can become institutionalized if you stay in the insurance industry in the law there's a risk of institutionalization you just with like-minded people thinking the same doing the same running through the same business objectives mm. so i spread my wings a little so i thought i'll go and learn from other places so i started joining different organizations and boards so i went on the board of um, sheffield theatres you know, obviously comedy and acting and that, that performance side was a passion of mine. So I adored being um, a trustee of Sheffield Theatres, which is just an amazing theatre mm. if, uh, if you've never been. Um, but being on that board, I, I learned a whole new business, mm. a different way of working, different set of rules, a different culture. Mm. And that learning from organisations like that, I got involved with Ashiana, which... Um, I worked on some specific projects about uh, trafficking, for example, and, oh. uh, 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 and abuse, which was something that I didn't understand a lot about. I do now. Mm. And um, that taught me so much value to bring back to my organization mm. about uh, issues, about how to manage a crisis and about being very, very grateful for the very privileged position most people in my profession are in mm. beyond that I got involved in the Chamber of Commerce and I became the president of the Chamber of Commerce and again that gave me access to hundreds and hundreds of smaller organizations mm. of SME businesses where where you could talk to them and understand the issues they face but also get a whole new perspective mm. so I found that a great learning process everything that I absorbed from that I put back into what I was doing mm. Um, and and use that as a great uh, um, training exercise for me. Mm. Well, it goes back to what you were saying when you were at university. You weren't just doing law on its own. You had uh, something on the side that you could bring in that gave um, you depth to gave depth to your job um, and gave you a different angle. I think just to look at things and to to stand out from the crowd, maybe. Yeah, I was always put on every marketing committee that ever existed <laughs> because uh, I was the only one with a marketing degree uh, behind me. But um, I think different perspectives are really important. Mm. Um, and I mentioned earlier, didn't I, about standing in somebody else's shoes and walking around in them mm. and, and really seeing life from their eyes. Mm. And by doing these different activities, and I'm still involved in uh, the Community Foundation at Sheffield United, for example, which does amazing uh, uh, work as a charity, um, with young and old people in the community um, using the power of a football organisation, but it's way beyond football and mm. in terms of education. And the results you see are inspiring. Mm. And that's every day that I get involved in that, that gives me more hope and more focus and more drive to to do more in my own organisation and outside of it. Mm. So how did you go about getting involved in those, um, those additional boards uh, and committees? There's various mechanisms. If you want to become a non-exec director, for example, there's a lot of headhunter organisations that have openings. The difficulty with that is if you're a young person starting out, you haven't got it on your CV in the first place. Mm. Um, 
So I got involved with the Chamber of Commerce, for example, um, through some industry um, meetings and, and formed some connections and it went from there. Um, as I built those connections and networked in, in different sectors, I met other people who then said, oh, there's uh, an opening, for example, in um, Sheffield Galleries and Museums. So I love art as well. Um, and uh, my first uh, effective board position mm. uh, as a trustee w- was there. Mm. Um, and that was about going out and asking, you've got to push yourself, you know. Mm. Um, it sounds like you were being open-minded as well. It's not, you weren't trying to put your, these extra curricular activities into a box, um, being that you now work in, in football and, and in arts and there's lots of different angles that you took. Do you know what I did? I did things I loved. <laughs> And you should always do a job you love. And I love the law, mm. but I also, you know, a people person. Mm. Um, I love cultures and travel, so that fits in well with my job as well. Mm. Um, but I'm a, I love football, I love comedy, and I love <laughs> the arts and theatre. So I was doing things that I really enjoyed mm. and I found fascinating, and they stretched me. And I think you've got to put yourself out there and find opportunities get a mentor and say hey mentor help me find these opportunities so if you can't you will know somebody who may be able to open doors for you Mm. find out what you enjoy outside of your comfort zone Mm. there'll be other things that you're interested in and then seek opportunity no matter how minor it may seem to you Mm. to explore that Mm. so we did a mentoring scheme um, at schools so getting lawyers to go into schools and talk to the young people about opportunities in the law, mm. particularly maybe in deprived areas where maybe they, they didn't see that as a career option for them, mm-hmm. but explaining it is an option for them mm. and how they can get there. And actually getting out into that community and having community-based interests has, um, has been invaluable for a lot of my colleagues that have done it. They've got so much out mm. of it and continue to do the mentoring schemes. Mm. So it, it, it can be, you don't have to go on a board. Mm. You've just got to do something outside of what you do as your day job mm. that I'm certain will help you bring back into your own workplace to make a difference somehow or somewhere. Mm. And I think um, I think it's crucial to add to your career in that way. I think a lot of what people face at the moment is trying to prioritise how to not just do their job, but do their job really well, but also get involved um, in, in committees and boards. And then there's family life on top of it. How do you go about doing all of the amazing stuff you do? Um, my family's number one. So um, I do have a family life um, and I always make time for it. And I never apologise saying, right, this weekend, you know, the phone well to be honest when I'm lying the phone's always on but I'm not always on the phone okay that's a difference um and you've got to make time Mm. you've got to make time for the things you love I've just said about checking out the things you love and making sure you Mm. you invest in that and um and family's critical to that so um I organize myself well I look ahead at my diary and I make time and I pencil things out and I ensure that I am available uh, at certain times, particularly um, for my mum who's had a stroke and, and needs to have me around a bit more, mm. um, and also to, to my family, um, and of course my dogs. I love <laughs> my dogs. So I always have to go home because I love my dogs and my partner. So I think 
being organized and doing what you need to do but not always saying yes to everything is really important as you mm. as you get busier in your career mm. I used to te- be terrible at always saying yes to everything mm. and now I've learned to say no or delegate mm. so I'm a massive delegator now <laughs> um, and that's great because that's giving other people opportunities as mm. well to to do the stuff that I would ordinarily have done and um, and educating people on how to do that and taking mm. people with you on a journey. You've got to get that balance. I mean, I'm, I keep myself very healthy as well. I was about to say, you told me on Monday you were going to off, off to do a triathlon. Yeah, I never did it. That is so embarrassing. <laughs> it was raining. It? Yeah, no, no, no. Well, it was an indoor one that I was doing. So oh, really? I just didn't finish work in time. So I've just said about making time, but uh, my meeting over. It doesn't always happen. But it doesn't always happen. But it something happens every week. I'm... I'm a big fan, uh, an advocate of of health and well-being, mm. both physical and mental. Mm. And actually, probably mental health is far more uh, important than it's ever been um, uh, in the workplace and and in your home life. Mm. But for me, feeling fit and well is is critical to me having the stamina to do what I need to do throughout the day. And that's the same for all my colleagues. I'm not unique in Kennedy's. Mm. Everybody works really hard. Mm. So I do have a gym routine. And when I'm in London, I've got a hotel that's got a swimming pool, a cycling machine and a running machine. So I do set myself a sprint triathlon and as often as I can. But I'm afraid Monday night was a complete (laughs) crash and burn. I didn't get in until nine o'clock and I just went to bed. Well, and you said it was going to be, what, two and a half hours as well? Yeah, two two hours. I watched... um, I watch the Great British Menu or Bake Off or something like that instead. If, if, if <laughs> Mental I, well-being. If I'm not running it off, I'm either eating it or watching how to eat it. So I, I do love my cookery program. So that's another way I relax. I, I do a lot of cooking and I'm really interested in, in, exactly. in food. So um, I'll always find time. But it, it is important to keep yourself fit and well. Mm. Um, even if it's, if you're not into physical activity, mindfulness, mm. finding time to have that peace. Mm, and and self-reflection I think Mm -hmm. as well just to reflect on on the day and uh, and how you're feeling really check in with it well that's why planes are good planes are good (laughs) you know I I always find that um, uh, I'm either doing reflectful thought or I'm on Netflix it's going to be one of the two (laughs) um, catching up binge watching series but uh, it's true on a plane because you aren't contactable and your Mm. phone's off and things like that it's a great time to sit and reflect Mm. Uh, about things that have gone well, things that you may do differently and uh, where you should be focusing your attention and just mm. peace and quiet. It's very hard, particularly if you've got a family, if you've got a young family. Mm. A lot of my colleagues have got a very demanding timetable at work, a very demanding um, workload, client base, etc. Mm. But then at home, it's full on. They've got young families mm. and um, and it's challenging, but you do need to find you time mm. because the best you is going to be the best for everybody else as well. Mm. And so we're running out of time. I, I think we could be here all day if we tried. Um, yeah, we need a gin and tonic, wouldn't we? If we carried on much longer. <laughs> um, just looking back on your career, doing some more self-reflection now. What is your one do and your one don't to building a successful career in the financial services? Don't pretend to be somebody else. And do push yourself beyond your boundaries to challenge you, to challenge others, and to be the best you can ever be at whatever you do. Success is not a title. It is not a pay reward. 
It is about being the best you can be at something and being happy. Try and achieve those and the world's your oyster. Great advice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to the ISC podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. You can get more information about the ISC at www.theinsurancesupperclub.com. Our show is produced by Connor Sweetman of Breakthrough Media. I'm Lara Pedley. See you next time.